Don't you hate it when there's a new podcast that you start listening to and it's real raw and bare bones and you love it and there's like no ads and it starts unceremoniously and it's just sort of talk without all the bells and whistles and cute stuff, but then you don't listen for a couple months and you come back and there's like a catchphrase that developed organically that they say at the top of the show and little segments and then they add a thing towards the end where they answer listener email. That's not going to happen in this case, folks. That's what I'm trying. That, that's my point here. Welcome back to Sondheim on Adderall. It's uh, been a minute since I've recorded one of these. I've been under the weather. I uh, <clears throat> have had issues uh, with my health, and I thought that it was strep throat because I tend to always get strep throat. Um, I'm cursed to always have strep throat in my life. I have it about once a year. Something to do with the tonsils, but if I get a tonsillectomy, I could jeopardize my singing voice. Therefore, it's just something I deal with, getting strep throat once a year. That may be pseudoscience, what I just said. Don't hold me to any of that, and if you have frequent strep throat and you think you need to get a tonsillectomy, consult a doctor. Don't consult a third-rate Sondheim podcast with uh, no credibility. So um, since I've been sick, I have uh, have not taken Adderall for a number of days. And today I uh, had a day off. So I, uh, I got a pretty good night's sleep and I had a pretty uh, hearty breakfast. And then I took an Adderall and uh, I'm flying, ladies and gentlemen. I can feel the difference after that little Adderall holiday. Um, I had forgotten the sensation of really feeling the effects of this thing. I got that feeling of euphoria in the back of my spine. And uh, I, I have the thing where I can't stop talking. So uh, I figured it was a good day to uh, get one of these down, in, in, get one of these in the can. Um, during my research this week, and by research, I kind of just mean going back over things that I've already read. Like I said, uh, the whole Sondheim canon and all these Sondheim shows, especially the ones I've talked about so far, I've been very familiar with for years and years and years. Uh, but going back over things today, reading uh, the Sondheim books, watching some stuff on YouTube, I found a uh, quote by Sondheim that surprised me. We talked about reading. He said, uh, he's not much of, I quote, I'm not much of a reader. I'm a slow one and I lack patience, not a winning combination. Boy, that's great to hear because I uh, feel the same way. And that really does hit home the fact, like, like I think we can all agree Sondheim is an intelligent man, <laughs> an intellectual uh, in so much as a musical theater fella can be. I don't know what that means. But um, I have the same struggles with sitting and reading, unless it's something that I'm really, really into reading. Like, for instance, Finishing the Hat by Stephen Sondheim, or Sondheim and Company by Craig Zaden. And I'm actually embarking on a uh, BA in English. What do you do with the... And, uh, you know, 20 years late right now. And I, the whole reason I started taking this Adderall mess was so that I could be a stronger reader. And uh, like I said, maybe in the first episode, that really only applies to things I'm interested in reading in the first place. It does not apply to My Antonia by Willa Cather. 
That was a terrible example. I did like that book. I had a nice time reading My Antonia by Willa Cather. If you if you uh, if you want a mid uh, early to mid twentieth century American novel, folks, and uh, you want to uh, hear a lot of uh, landscape allegory involving the plains and Nebraska, pick up a copy of My Antonia by Willa Cather. This is not a Willa Cather podcast. This is a, a Sondheim podcast, and today. We are here to talk about a real, uh, a, a humdinger of a Sondheim musical. And you know what it is because you've already looked at the title of the episode. We're going to talk about A Little Night Music, which is quite possibly the horniest Sondheim musical. Also, it's the horniest, but it's also somehow the most uh, high class and buttoned up. And I'm going to tell you something. I like it. I like a little night music. I liked it from the jump. Ever since I was in middle school. It's a strange musical for a middle schooler to like. Uh, I would say. I would uh, offer. But I think if you like things like, say, the film Amadeus. Or the film Barry Lyndon. Or the, you know, films of the Jane Austen novels. Sense and Sensibility. Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility is the one that comes to mind for me, uh, generationally. I know there have been some since then. Uh, the Kira Knightley's Pride and Prejudice. I didn't see that. But um, it's, it's a fun little costume drama, although it's not really a drama. And it's not fun and it's not little. <laughs> um, do you get what I'm saying, though? If, if you're in the mood for... Uh, people in corsets having a good time. Are they wearing corsets? I know so little about history and Europe. This is a turn of the century Swedish story, or it's about, it takes place in Sweden at the turn of the century. And I'm going to tell you something. It's based on a film by Ingmar Bergman, the iconic film director Ingmar Bergman. If you, um, don't know who Bergman is, then you're a fucking idiot. I'm just kidding. I mean, at the very least, you know about Bergman because um, you've seen those Woody Allen films where Woody Allen won't shut up about how wonderful Bergman is. And so you like Bergman by way of Woody Allen, which is not something I would necessarily recommend. I have not seen the source material, uh, Smiles of a Summer Night, the Bergman film. And I had high hopes that in advance of this podcast, I would finally watch Smiles of a Summer Night, the Bergman film, which is apparently quite different than the musical A Little Night Music that is loosely based on it. And um, I have no uh, excuse because I've been sick. I've been re-watching Ozark, I'll be honest with you, rather than sitting and watching Bergman films. Have I ever seen a Bergman film? I have seen uh, Scenes from a Marriage, which I guess is a television program or a television, uh, uh, what would you call a miniseries? Um, surely I've seen something else. You, you know what's happening in my head right now? There's a film that I'm 80% sure is a Bergman film, but, and I, I know I've seen it, but I don't want to say what it is because if it's not a Bergman film, I'm going to sound like such an idiot. So I'm going to go ahead and check real quick. Give me one sec. Boom. It is a Bergman film. The Seventh Seal, 
playing chess with death and so on. I've seen that. So I'm not that dumb. Anyway, I haven't seen Smells of a Summer Night. A Little Night Music is based on Smells of a Summer Night. Um, the old team is back together here. We got Stephen Sondheim on music and lyrics. We got his old pal Harold Prince directing and producing. And uh, Harold Prince calls this show Whipped Cream with Knives. Whipped Cream with Knives. Maybe. I like that. Could use a few more knives. Maybe. I think it ended up being uh, more whipped cream than knives. Let's put it that way. And learning about the making of it, you can see kind of how that happened. Now, if you're not familiar with A Little Night Music, the best entry point, I would say, because there aren't too many ideal ones. I mean, there are a few, but none, none of them are really ideal. Um, I would say if you want to go the route that I went, I started with the original cast recording from 1973 with Glynis Johns and Len Carreyou. And um, maybe, you know, if you like what you hear, go over to YouTube and check out the uh, New York City Opera performance that they recorded live. They, they broadcast live on television in 1990. It's not great. I would say, like, if you're already on board and you want to see a less good version, maybe do that. I would even say less good, just different, uh, more operatic, not how it was really intended. I'm going to definitely recommend you not see the film that they made of it, directed by Harold Prince himself in the mid to late 70s, starring Elizabeth Taylor. But you don't need me to tell you not to see it because you can't find this fucking movie anywhere. It, is, it has been erased from history. Uh, more on that later. We have a new book writer on board for this show, Hugh Wheeler. There's not a lot of info on Hugh Wheeler. I know that he wrote the book for this, and he wrote the book for Sweeney Todd. And based on those two pieces of information, you imagine he must be a very highfalutin British type <laughs> that uh, writes period things. And that's about all we got on, 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 on Wheelie there, on, on Hugh. So, uh, Hugh Wheeler... I, I, we lost him, certainly, a few years ago. Rest in peace, Hugh Wheeler. My Little Night Music journey is similar to the one that I just laid out for you as a suggestion. I got the original cast recording. It was bought for me by my father. I was already on the Sondheim train pretty deeply, and I knew of A Little Night Music, but I didn't really know anything about it. Um, so I listened to it. I think my first reaction to it, my, uh, to the first few songs, was, ah, I don't like this. This sounds like something that would be on, um, you know, uh, what, what, not, not uh, KPCC, what am I thinking? KUSC here in uh, Los Angeles, the classical music station. Uh, something that my dad might be into, that maybe Garrison Keeler might have a special interest in. Uh, it was a little too legit sounding for me. As it progressed, however, I, I heard some of the songs and enjoyed them a bit more. And I was really, I think, um, I was just looking for fodder for things to enjoy and things to imagine myself in. The whole way, that, the way that you, the way that young people... What am I trying to say here? So uh, if you live in, let's say, a remote area and you can't see a lot of theater, which was not the case with me. I grew up in Los Angeles. 
Um, but of course, the Los Angeles theater scene is a bit impoverished and it always has been. I think the way to be fluent in musicals is to listen to the original cast recording. And then if you're really hardcore, get your hands on a copy of the book, the libretto, and contextualize the recording. There may or may not be a synopsis on the... Uh, I mean, I, I'm talking like this is 1998, right? Where all we have to go on is a CD with a little booklet in the CD and then a libretto from the library. I understand that you can look things up on the internet now. But I think if you read the synopsis of a musical and see where the songs come in and then listen through it, this requires a bit more active listening, for instance, though, like than it would if you just put something on in the car, which is also an okay way to absorb a piece of musical theater if you're interested. When I was a child, my mom played tapes in the car. The two that I can think of, Annie, Get Your Gun and The Music Man, I came up with a whole story about what was happening in those musicals based on what I was hearing from the soundtrack, which, you know, was pretty off, I guess, from what was really going on once I really found out. But, yeah, if you like musicals and you can't go see them, that's the way to do it. And that's what I did with A Little Night Music. And, uh, and I think a lot of people say, you know, if you say, oh, do you like this musical? If they say, oh, I haven't seen it. I think my first instinct is like, well, who cares? <laughs> I didn't see Hamilton for about two years after I considered myself fluent in Hamilton because I listened to the soundtrack and the soundtrack tells the story. And if you want to read along with uh, American history or whatever synopsis was available online, you can figure it out. Uh, I'm rambling here. So I saw the New York City Opera version eventually after I read the script of A Little Night Music and... Um, it sucks because it's operatic, like I said. And I think for each episode of this, I like to imagine that I'm offending an entire subculture of people. And I'm going to do that now. I don't like opera people or opera. And uh, sorry, I guess I respect it. And if somebody is really good at it and doing it as a one-off, if somebody sings an aria... Like, for instance, uh, where I work, I work at an Italian restaurant where people sing. Most people there sing pop musical theater, but we got one or two opera singers. And when they do, I was like, well, that's impressive. People that are good at it, that do it, are impressive. I studied opera in high school, briefly. I went to an arts high school, studied theater. My senior year, I switched to music. All my friends were in the opera class. So I went and got into the opera class. And there is a vibe to opera people that I have noticed not just uh, I noticed not just in high school, but since then. And um, I don't care for it. They're pretentious. Can we agree on that? Listen, if you're an opera person and you're not pretentious, and I have met people that are nice, I'm making a rash generalization here. But if you meet somebody that does opera on a regular basis, there's like a decent chance they suck. I'll just say that. Not, It's not uh, absolute. It's just there's a decent chance that they're not a lot of fun to hang out with. These songs are really bad when you, they're sung operatically. And I think a lot of Sondheim songs when sung operatically are not good or by legit singers, whatever that means. I mean, that turned into a thing that people say, a pop or legit 
prepare 32 bars of pop and 32 bars of legit. Sondheim can be ruined by those because you lose the words. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck they're saying in these Verdi operas or these Puccini operas. I don't know uh, what words are being lost in theirs by the uh, of it all. But when you're singing something as verbose and interesting as a Sondheim song with an operatic voice, it really seems like it's missing the point to sing it legitly. Which is why as much as I love um, Anadra McDonald and what she does with a song like Your Daddy's Son in Ragtime, when she sings Sondheim, I kind of wish that, uh, you know, I could uh, I could hear what she was saying. It's just my opinion, okay? Audra McDonald is a national treasure. The Book of a Little Night Music is a good one. I enjoyed reading it in middle school, mostly because it was very naughty. There's a lot of sex in it. And again, please remember that I was 13 years old. And uh, that's why that was of interest to me. I It's of interest to a lot of people, but it was of interest to me in the way that it was of interest to me for that reason. Sondheim, when he first got the book from Hugh, Hugh took a pass at it. Hugh didn't like his concept, his original concept for how to do it, which we'll talk about later, which sounds awesome. But Hugh Wheeler went in a different direction with it. Sondheim did not like it at first, right? He, uh, But now he has changed his mind. He says it is, quote, one of the half dozen best books ever written for a musical. High praise. I think Assassins might be my favorite book for a musical. I can't wait till the Assassin's episode. That's one of my favorite. Um, anyway, so Turn of the Century Sweden, based on the Bergman film. I believe it's a lot less dark than the Bergman film. Again, haven't seen the Bergman film. Now, let's talk about the problematic elephant in the problematic room. Central to the plot of A Little Night Music is our hero, Frederick Egerman. An old middle-aged lawyer has just married an 18-year-old. And um, he's hoping to consummate the marriage, but she's too shy and doesn't want to have sex. And she's 18. And check this out. They've been married for 11 months. So what does that tell you, folks? I can't believe I didn't think about this before. And But so... Yeah, she's 18. They've been married 11 months. They haven't had sex yet. I sure hope that uh, when they got married, she was 18 in five days. You know what I mean? Otherwise. Look, it was another time, and well, let's not get too into the weeds on that, right? We could, we could watch the first 10 minutes of a little night music and decide that this is weird and toxic and horribly European. <laughs> the fact that this old man has an 18-year-old wife and he's desperate to fuck her. But let's not. Let's just uh, put this in the Library of Congress with a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and not waste time and energy going point by point by point by point through every work of art that uh, makes us uncomfortable because of how creepy it is. I've said too much already. Let's just let's just all accept the fact that Frederick 
has an 18-year-old wife, and he's not the villain of the piece. He's just a guy trying to get his rocks off. So anyway, uh, that's uh, now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about other things having to do with a little night music. Um, so that stuff is weird to watch in 2023. For me, I went into detail on the Gypsy episode about how I don't like the whole showbiz stage people thing. There's a little bit of that in this because our leading lady, Desiree Armfelt, hi-ho, she lives the glamorous life and it's all about, I just live the life of an actor from town to town, staying in digs and uh, hi-ho, the glamorous life, which is kind of a ripoff of Pinocchio, right? Which is definitely older than this with the high diddle dee dee the actor's life for me. We're going to say hi-ho, the glamorous life. It's not that close. Who cares? There's a tone to A Little Night Music that uh, when I was listening to it and getting into it as a child, I thought that it was going to be what adult life was when I grew up. Because to a certain extent, it kind of... My father did kind of live the life of a person in A Little Night Music. Uh, that like I th it's I thought that it was it's a musical for people who eat risotto and have pocket squares and they go to the ballet and the opera. It's very civilized, a little night music. And to demonstrate this, I want to point out two reviews of the show that came out when it opened. One of which is a bad review and one of which is a rave review but they're both kind of saying the same thing let's start with the bad review this is very well put i think it was written by kevin kelly in the boston globe so kevin kelly says it suffers from a kind of complicated simplicity that stirs admiration but not much feeling it's distinctive charming pleasurable and remote i appreciate all of its qualities except its overworked intricacies and wish it had the power to make an impression on my emotions since it is a musical dedicated to the mystery of emotions and that's true right uh it's it's a very polite musical now on the flip side of this but again saying really the same thing this is a rave review in the new york times of all places by clive barnes who side note hated every sondheim musical up until this one that tells you a little bit about Clive Barnes and how much risotto he eats and whether or not there's a pocket square in his jacket. <laughs> he said, A little night music is heady, civilized, sophisticated, and enchanting. At last, a new operetta. It is Dom Perignon. I'm not kidding. He really wrote this. It is supper at Le Serre, and it is more fun than any tango in a Parisian suburb. Good God, an adult musical. So there you go, folks. Um, <laughs> I think I saw a, the, the, the blurb of that on the CD cover, an adult musical. And I thought that meant it was about fucking. Like I thought they meant like the adult, the adult uh, section of the video store when they said an adult musical. And I might not have been interested had I known what they really meant by that, that it was Dom Perignon and tango in a Parisian suburb. Jesus Christ. 
or the maybe I would have, maybe I still would have, um, just to challenge myself and feel. You know, my my nephew Harold, uh, I think he, he he's uh, just turned nine, but um, in the in the last year, he um, he reads a lot, and he announced to his family he was going to read Don Quixote, and they're like, oh, I don't know, you know, it's a it's a hard book, it's very long, and then he posted himself up in the living room reading it, being like. Look at me, motherfuckers. I'm reading Don Quixote. That's probably what I was doing with some of this stuff, like a little night music. Um, in, a, in, a, in a race to grow up and show my erudite parents just how erudite I was. Now, the original concept of the musical, A Little Night Music, is really, it's a really exciting idea. And it's a shame that it didn't work out. And I'm going to explain it to you here. For those of you who don't know. Um, so it was kind of like, uh, you ever seen the movie Clue with Tim Curry and all the people, uh, the movie based on the board game? It's kind of like that, where it had three different endings. Same characters, same everything. Um, the, the, the first time, it's like everything gets mixed up and it's a farce. And it's like uh, everyone ends up with the wrong partner by the end. And oh boy, ah, who ah, funny thing happened the way to the forum. Then... At the end of each ending, the old woman, Madame Armfelt, who's been playing solitaire the whole time, she shuffles the cards in her deck, and then everything goes back to the beginning. Second time, everything works out, but Henrik, the son, commits suicide. That's right, folks. She shuffles the cards again, and the third time, everything works out fine, but uh, Frederick walks out on Desiree because, quote, she hadn't done anything to make him want her. So I read that in the Zayden book and I was like, okay, I wasn't like really sold on it. And I was like, well, it turned out fine. But then when Sondheim, I think Sondheim describes it a little bit better in the Finishing the Hat book. And I'll read this full quote, uh, the way that he describes, he was sort of brainstorming in the early process. He said, quote, what if the first deal works out as a farce, characters falling in love with the wrong partners? The second one is a genuine tragedy, which results in Henrik's suicide, ending the first act. And the third is a romantic comedy in which everyone would be properly paired off and Desiree would be left alone with Frederick. And instead of restating the theme at the end, as often happens in the classic form, I would leave something emotionally unresolved, calling for a coda, in which Desiree has to make a straightforward commitment to the man she has manipulated. I thought the show could be about the danger and inevitable failure of trying to maneuver people emotionally. That does sound great. Um, and so I think going with Hugh Wheeler's take on it, Hugh Wheeler did not, could not make that work when he wrote the book. And so Sondheim said, all right, well, write the book the way that you want to write the book and we'll see how we like it. So he wrote the book and it was very straightforward. It was just tell the story told once. And that's the one that they went with. And it is a good show, but it's not daring. It's not unconventional, like all of Sondheim's stuff up to this point. And interestingly enough, it's one of his more popular shows. <laughs> and that kind of sucks, if you ask me. I'm not trying to be a contrarian asshole and be like, hey, I only like the beast. I only like the stuff that everybody doesn't like. But it's a shame that this show is so conventional and it is everybody's favorite when the unconventional ones are really good. Although anyone can whistle, 
I haven't really been fully exposed to anyone who can whistle, but that one was extremely experimental and allegedly not very good. I could be wrong. The score of A Little Night Music, it's in the vein of Ravel, Rachmaninoff, and Brahms. We have uh, fugettos, canons, contrapuntal duets, trios, a quintet, a quartet, and a double quartet. And they're all in three-quarter time, folks. All the songs in the show. Now, I get confused by time signatures. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I know broadly what 4-4 four, four sounds like and what 3-4 sounds like and what 2-4 sounds like. It's just once we get into larger number larger numbers that are divisible by 2, 3, and 4, I cannot tell the fucking difference. And my piano teacher, Mr. Fister, tried to explain this to me. Prayers up to Mr. Fister. I can't imagine Mr. Fister is still alive. He was a very old man in the late 90s. But I still don't, I, I don't quite get it. I think he even used Send in the Clowns from A Little Night Music to try to explain it to me because that is in an interesting time signature. And he said, this is what it would sound like if it was just in three. It'd be like, isn't it rich? Da, da, do, da, da, do, da, da. Aren't we up here? Do, da, do, da, da. Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. Because I don't get it. But the idea of having the whole show in three-quarter times, in three-quarter time, excuse me, is um, brings up the topic of formal restrictions, which is something that I'm fascinated by and something that I learned from my buddy. He's not my buddy. He's somebody that I idolize uh, on a certain level. Uh, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, the lead singer and principal songwriter of my favorite band. He talks about formal restrictions. Like he'll say, okay, I'm going to do a whole album with no guitar. It's going to be... Uh, not going to bring the guitar to the studio. Or like uh, Professor Longhair, the blues piano player, the New Orleans blues piano player, he learned how to play on a piano that was missing, that had broken keys. And as a result of those keys missing, he developed a whole new style of playing. So when you take things away, new things can blossom. And so saying that I'm going to write an entire musical in three-quarter time is like a really interesting and probably very fruitful way of going about it. In Finishing the Hat, he talks about it in terms of theme and variations. And he's very angry about the idea of a through-composed musical because that's what a lot of people called this. And I guess when people said that at the time, I don't know, I mean, I haven't heard anyone say it at the time, but I don't really run in musical theater literati circles or anything like that um until uh, yeah but a through composed musical is basically just like a score where the songs sort of refer to each other or there's like a lot of reprises and it's not just a disconnected string of songs which you know lay miserable my god if you sit through an entire evening of lay miserable from start to finish you have to hear some shit over and over and over again like that fucking they there's so many goddamn repetitions of that tune of that melody i guess that's what a through composed musical is but the theme 
in theme and variations, which was what Sondheim was working on in this, he says the theme here is a metric one, but uh, there are variations on that theme. And he says, the, quote, these are the three beat, uh, they're polonaises, mazurkas, sarabands, jigs, and more are all versions of the triple meter or of duple meters subdivided into six or 12 beats. Enough so that even with a relentless succession of threes throughout the evening, I should be able to avoid re repetitiousness. I'm going to take his word for it, because like I said, the I, time signatures um, fuck, with, fuck my head up. They went to rehearsal on A Little Night Music with 10 out of 16 songs written and 6 left unwritten, which is a Sondheim thing, as we learn as we go along here. And it drives everybody out of their mind. <laughs> Because Sondheim is a lazy guy. He would rather do little uh, jigsaw puzzles and the New York Times crossword puzzle than sit down and hammer out songs. He has to fuck around for a long time before he writes anything. And so... But then that makes things come out of rehearsal and for the necessity, you know, and so the, whatever. It's good. We get Patricia Birch on board as the choreographer of A Little Night Music, which is interesting because... All of the art design of A Little Night Music has a lot of birch trees. I wonder if that's how they got the idea to hire Patricia Birch. Let's talk about the shittiest aspect of A Little Night Music. It's the quintet. They suck. I hate them. They're uh, supposed to be like leader singers, which if you know anything about... I, I, I took a music appreciation class in, let's call it, 2011. And I learned about what leader was. Uh, like Brahms wrote a lot of leader. We got these motherfuckers around a piano and they're singing. And they ruined the show, these leader singers in their fucking tuxedos and evening gowns. I don't care for them. I wish they weren't in it. They're not characters in the show. They have weird names that are Nordic, like Mrs. Lindquist and Mr. something, or Mr. So-and-so. There's five of them, two men, three women. They sing, remember, and hi-ho, the glamorous life. And then a bunch of shit in the second act that you wish was not there. It was a mistake. I think that um, certain people agree that they were a mistake. I'm not sure if Sondheim does, but maybe Prince does. Patricia Birch doesn't care for them. The script is Chekhovian in style. I think I know what that means. I might not know what that means. I'm really humiliating myself with this episode because this is involving a lot of high art language that I don't really know, but I have the millennial tendency to assume I know. That's another gross uh, generalization. I apologize to my uh, the other millennials that may or may that may know things. James Goldman, we talked about before, writer of *The Princess Bride* and innumerable. Hollywood scripts. A lot of Steve, uh, a lot of, um, sorry, Stephen King adaptation scripts. He wrote the script to Follies, which we skipped, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. Follies came right before this. He's a lifelong friend of Sondheim. Also dead, by the way. Died before he did. He said, when he saw it, he said it was a glorious score, but it was too polite. Quote, the reason that it did so well at the box office was probably because of its neatness and placidity. There is nothing disturbing about it, unquote. Yeah, that's depressing. It's kind of disturbing, but maybe just by our standards now. 
the age thing obviously is disturbing. But also, I mean, there is a attempted suicide and there is a lot of weird... I don't know. The, it also, the opening of this show, the show takes a long time to get going. It starts with this fucking sung overture by those five assholes, the quintet, <laughs> where they're like warming up around the piano and then they sing little pieces, but most of it's just like, la, 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 la. And then after all of that mess, the curtain opens and there's a waltz. But here's the dumb thing. It's, we're seeing all of the characters in the show, the leads in the show, waltzing with each other. But we don't know who the fuck these people are. And we don't know what the meaning is of their waltzing. And why this one's waltzing with that one and that one's not waltzing with that one. So, it's weird. The show takes a while to get going. The original cast, on the original cast recording, is really good, I think. Mostly because of Glynis Johns. I love Glynis Johns. She played Desiree Armfelt, original singer of Send in the Clowns. Sondheim still says that she's his favorite who has ever sang it, even though everybody and their mother has sang Send in the Clowns because it is the most successful Sondheim song ever, which makes no sense. We're going to talk a lot about that later, and I'm going to get pissed off about it, I can tell, because I'm already pissed off alluding to it. Glynis Johns, if you don't know who she was, she's in Mary Poppins. She's the mom in Mary Poppins. Also, if you've seen the 90s Christmas comedy, The Ref, with Dennis, uh, oh, come on, Dennis, uh, the, yeah, I'm an asshole, I'm an asshole, Leary, Dennis Leary, and uh, Kevin Spacey, she's the mean grandma in The Ref, and uh, she's a delight. Hermione Gingold is in this. Yeah, she plays the old woman in the wheelchair. She talks a bit like this. Liaisons. She's Miss Shin from The Music Man. She was also in Gigi, the movie. Thank heaven for little girls, am I right? No. Also weird. Uh, Len Carreyou. Soon to be Sweeney Todd. I like him. He'll pop up in a film or two as an old man also. He's still alive, this Len Carreyou. I remember seeing him in About Schmidt. I got excited. I was like, hey, Sweeney Todd. About Schmidt. Now, let's talk about some of the more minor, not minor, but just some of the other actors. So like I said in the last episode, the company episode, I had a weird obsessive thing where I would, I knew the names of all of the minor actors in these Sondheim original casts because I, for some reason, thought it was a good use of my time to memorize them. A Little Night Music, there's a woman who plays Anne Agerman in the original cast. Her name is Victoria Mallory. I had a crush on Victoria Mallory based only on pictures of her in my Sondheim books and her voice on the album. I knew nothing else about her, but I thought she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life when I was 13 or so. There was no internet at the time, or no viable internet. And so I, I, there was nothing to be learned about her. I mean, there still kind of isn't. I did learn a couple things about her just now in preparation of this, having not thought about Victoria Mallory for upwards of 25 years. So, um, so the interesting thing was like a lot of these minor, they're not minor, like these Broadway actors, 
I wanted to know about them. I was so curious about these people that were in these original casts. And I remember, because West Side Story was the first musical I fell in love with, I remember saying like, okay, Larry Kurt is the original Tony. And I went over to the wall of the den where we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I went to K and I tried to look up Larry Kurt and there was nothing. So I had to make up uh, my own stories about who these people were. Victoria Mallory, madly in love with her. I looked her up just now. A couple interesting things about her. She was a martial artist. Uh, tai Chi Chuan. She got her start uh, playing Maria at the Lincoln Center. Uh, revival of West Side Story. Whoops. She's not Puerto Rican. 1968. She is half Filipina, though. I did not know that, but you can kind of see it. She also married Mark Lambert. Who's Mark Lambert? I'm going to tell you who Mark Lambert is. He plays Henrik in A Little Night Music. They fell in love during the rehearsal process. And I really like that, that they got married. He's also great as Henrik. That high note is a win. And then I did some research about Mark Lambert. He got discovered in, by a Hollywood executive who went to go see him in San Jose Community Theater. What the fuck? How does that happen? <laughs> it's like my, my aunt got a three-picture deal because somebody from... MGM came to see her in Hollywood High School's production of My Fair Lady as Eliza Doolittle. You don't hear stories like that anymore. Everybody's on the grind now. Which is why I have a defense mechanism of communicating to myself and everybody around me that I'm not trying so that I don't feel pathetic. Which is why I have not promoted this podcast. They made a movie of A Little Night Music. Where the fuck is it? You can't find it anywhere. It's not available. I saw it in the 90s because I found it at Eddie Brandt's Hollywood Matinee. Maybe it's Eddie Brandt's Sunday Matinee. It was a store in the Valley in Los Angeles that had VHS tapes of everything. Walls and walls and walls and walls. You asked for it, they got it. That's where I saw a lot of this shit. You can see clips of it on YouTube, mostly just the songs, or you can watch the whole thing overdubbed in German. I wouldn't recommend that. For some reason, they don't overdub the songs, but they overdub the dialogue. I feel like I liked it when I saw it. They made some changes. I really like Diana Rigg. And by the way, the character of Charlotte is really the best part of A Little Night Music. She is the best character in A Little Night Music. And it's a shame that she doesn't show up until, um, you know, two-thirds of the way through the first act. Sondheim wrote a new version of A Glamorous Life for the movie, and it is a banger. It feels very 70s pop. It's kind of like if uh, somebody made a baby of a Stephen Schwartz song and a Stephen Sondheim song. It's like a Stephen Schwartz song, but better. Like, more interesting. And they got rid of all that annoying shit with the la, 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 hi-ho, the doo-ba-doo-doo. And it's just um, Frederica, Desiree's daughter, singing this sort of um, wistful, melancholy song about her mother not being an ordinary mother. 
Ordinary mothers, da da do 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 do, and ordinary mothers, da 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 da, and ordinary mothers, da da. Give it a listen. A glamorous life, the movie version. Underrated Sondheim song there. But it is interesting that it feels very poppy to me. It could just be my uh, interpretation of it. When they were casting the movie, they won originally wanted Peter Finch from Network to play Frederick, and he quit early on. He was mad as hell, and he couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> Am I right? Somebody called Robert Stevens was hired to replace him, but they fired him because he was being mean to Elizabeth Taylor, who was hired to play Desiree Armfelt, which is the part that pissed everybody off because she was wrong for it, because apparently Elizabeth Taylor is a big idiot. I cannot speak to this. I don't know much about Elizabeth Taylor. I'm a big fan of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and the reason, the way that I became a fan of it was by seeing the movie version, which has her in it, and I think that I can say that she's not the best part of that movie. Richard Burton is, uh, and I've seen it done by people better than Elizabeth Taylor, though certainly not Calissa Flockhart. I did see that here in LA at the Geffen, and... Ah, <laughs> oh, Callista. Anyway, she went through hell, and she went to hell and back filming this uh, movie, A Little Night Music. She fell off of a motorcycle, and she you know got a big gash out of her leg later on during filming she cracked a bone in her toe she got pneumonia the movie sucked basically <laughs> and not just for those reasons I guess the great film critic Pauline Kael said quote this picture has been made as if Harold Prince has never seen a movie that's not a good review I love the film criticism of Pauline Kael. In case ever you people all think I'm a so, uh, chauvinist, Pauline Kael is all right in my book. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so Zayden, in the Craig Zayden book, uh, Zayden himself at the end of the chapter says, For Stephen Sondheim, the well-made motion picture adaptation of one of his stage shows, perhaps temporarily, still eludes him. This was written in 1989. Is this still true? Let me ask you, podcast audience, has there been a well-made motion picture adaptation of a Stontime show since 1989 that we can point to? I know my answer, and my answer is sort of, but not really. What have we had since then? We had Sweeney Todd, trash. In the Sweeney Todd episode, I imagine I'm going to talk a lot about the Tim Burton film of Sweeney Todd, which I don't like. Sondheim thinks it's great. He loves it. He's wrong. There was a, no disrespect to the dead. But um, also Into the Woods, okay? Uh, 2014. I think that that's a good movie, but I only think it's good because it's a good translation of what that movie is for today's children. Now, if they made that film for us, you know, then maybe we could get mad that they cut out no more and that they move things around and that they have actual children playing Little Red and Jack. But it's a nice entry point for children and it sort of makes the movie, you know, Disney-fies it for children. And we're back. Oh boy, I had a horrific coughing fit. Still getting over this fucking thing, but... um. Yeah, Into the Woods, the movie. I think uh, overall it was a good thing that they made it 
I saw it with my seven-year-old stepson when it came out. I think he was eight, actually. Yep, he was eight. And I liked seeing it through his eyes. It's for kids. Into the Woods is not necessarily for kids, but Into the Woods, the film by Disney, is for kids. And there's nothing really wrong with that. There's a lot of things wrong with Disney. I think Disney is an evil thing that should not be a thing. But what are we going to do about that? Nothing. Richard Linklater is making a movie of Merrily We Roll Along. I love the films of Richard Linklater. If you don't know who he is, he made, uh, you know, Dazed and Confused and Slacker and all those and a million other things. He made Boyhood uh, the, over the course of years. And I guess that they're, they're, they're making Merrily We Roll Along in the same way. Where it's Merrily We Roll Along takes place over the course of many years. And he moved backwards in time. So he's going to do like a backwards Boyhood style thing with Merrily We Roll Along. Which sounds amazing. But might not be amazing. Because... Sometimes you, 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 there, there's only too much amazing to be had. If the source material is amazing, and Merrily We Roll Along is amazing, and the director is amazing, it might not work out. Example, the film version of White Noise by Noah Baumbach. Incredible book, incredible director. Didn't work. Too much incredibleness. The cup runneth over. Also, Linklater's Merrily We Roll Along is going to be starring two people, which since they were announced and they since they started work on this thing, have been publicly shamed as being terrible <laughs> in musicals or in movies. Ben Platt, the young man that was in Dear Evan Hansen, and Beanie Feldstein, who apparently was just so terrible in Funny Girl, that uh, everybody lost their minds and they fired her and replaced her with the girl from Glee. This is uh, musical theater gossip <laughs> uh, news that I, I have, I'm not interested in. My, my point is, I wonder what that's even going to be. Because if, they, if it takes them 20, 30 years to make this, first of all, maybe Richard Linklater will die. But also, 20, 30 years from now, people will be like, who the fuck is... Beanie Feldstein. Like, remember how Patricia Arquette won the Best Actress for Boyhood, but she hadn't worked in several years? It's because when they started Boyhood, she was still a person that people knew. I love movie musicals, and uh, I think everything has to be in the right place for a movie musical to succeed, and it doesn't actually necessarily mean that the musical is that good, because the best ones, let's talk about really good ones. Fiddler on the Roof, that is a great movie musical. And it's a great musical, but what Norman Jewison did with that is so good and so its own thing. Makes it a movie where it should be a movie. Makes it theatrical where it should be theatrical. A more modern example is Chicago, which I think I've praised before. I don't particularly love the musical Chicago. Going to high school in the late 90s, theater kids were obsessed with that fucking thing and all of the theater girls would get together and pretend that they were B.B. Newworth and sing all that jazz or do the cell block tango. And But that movie just found a way to make it work as a movie. What if Sondheim shows are already too good as is and they don't need movie versions? It's quite possible. 
But Into the Woods uh, comes close. It does its it does the trick. It does what it's supposed to do. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this link later thing works out. Merrily we roll along. Because that is my favorite show ever. Let's talk about the songs in the Little Night Music, because there are some good ones. So yeah, send in the clowns. Send in the clowns. Why is this the number one hit by Sondheim? Why is this the one that caught on? He doesn't get it. And I'm not just saying I don't get it because he says he doesn't get it and I'm trying to ingratiate myself to the dead man. I guess I didn't really get it when I first heard it. I was just like, yeah, it's pretty. I think my parents even said to me, oh, you'll understand this song when you're older. And I think I get it now. There's a weird, in the New York City Opera version that was live, which I just saw in from my sickbed on YouTube, Hugh Downs is there and he's interviewing Sondheim during intermission. And he's asking him about sending the clowns and he explains what it means. <laughs> the uh, send in the clowns that we're not talking about circus clowns right we're talking about theater clowns Desiree's a theater person like things aren't going well on stage during our variety show so oh better send the clowns in and that's what she's saying that that's what it means D did you all know that already am I a dummy acting like this is a big discovery whatever I didn't get it I and then by the end, it's like, oh, we're the clowns. Don't bother, they're here. That By the end of the song. We are the clowns. Whatever, man. Send in the clowns. Isn't it rich? So it wasn't a hit at first. It was in this thing, and people liked it or whatever. Um, Glynis Johns, who is an adorable woman and a very likable uh, actress, uh, she wasn't a like a trained singer so he wrote a, a song for her that was like easy with short phrases and it's she's just it's just a joy listening to her sing that on the original cast recording judy collins had a hit with it in england and then frank sinatra did it which is weird and then it became huge check this out it won a grammy in 1975 for best song now i'm not talking about best song from a musical or from a musical theater album. I'm talking about best song of 1975. And it's the last song from a musical that has done this, apparently. Well, as of the writing of Finishing the Hat, I maybe certainly let it go. I, I, who gives a shit about the Grammys? But my point is 1975, it, it beat Love Will Keep Us Together and Rhinestone Cowboy as the best song of that year. That's bananas. But believe it or not, Sondheim has not egotted. He does not have an egot. They never gave Sondheim an Emmy Award. Those fuckers. Andrew Lloyd Webber, he, he's an egot. It's bullshit. We are an anti-Andrew Lloyd Webber podcast, except for aspects of Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar. I agree with Sondheim that Glynis Johns sings it better than anyone else. When somebody's a really good singer and they sing it, it's boring. 
here's a fun autobiographical side note. Um, when my dad got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and started taking dopamine medication that radically changed his personality and made him um, sort of emotive and uh, angry for the first time in his life, he, my mom called the cops on him because he was like banging on the her bedroom door. And then later that night, he was like, we're all going to dinner, kids. We're leaving your mother here. And we all went to Casa Vega in Studio City here. And um, he sat down at dinner and uh, he was so uh, embarrassed and angry that she had called the cops. And he rewrote the words to send in the clowns, uh, made his own version called send in the cops about, um, oh, now we're just a, we're a domestic disturbance household. Uh, anyway, <laughs> That story is a lot darker than I thought it was. I thought it'd be cute. Anyway, uh, sorry for telling that story. <laughs> the best song in a little night music, uh, for my money, is A Weekend in the Country. I wish the whole show was like this. With these little vignettes and uh, these little scenes that's so fun. I have an intriguing little social item. What? I don't think... Uh, it's great. And it's, I like songs from musicals that have scenes that tell a story, that are like little plays. And in the old days, you'd call that recitative, and it wouldn't be like a proper song. It would just be like a little in-between thing where we're, it's musicalized dialogue. But I think, you know, which is why like Hamilton, one of my favorite songs in Hamilton is that Stay Alive sequence. And I have never seen the general so despondent. I have taken over. No, no, no. Where, where it's there's a whole scene with uh, Charles Lee, and then he gets meet uh, meet me inside, and they have a little duel in between. I don't know. I like those songs. They're like that rather than songs where that are like soliloquies that stop the action of the show. I like them both, but I also I I favor songs like Weekend in the Country. I wish more of the show was like that. And that we didn't have that fucking quintet pausing the action to comment on it. However, that waltz at the beginning, the the sun won't set, or whatever it's called, the, they do, it comes up a lot, but... I like that a lot. Seems like it should be more ubiquitous than it is. Because it's... It reminds me of the carousel waltz. And it also, it sounds, this could be a really ignorant thing to say, it sounds like Tchaikovsky to me. That's probably wrong. I know that he said it was, uh, the score was Ravel, Rachmaninoff, and Brahms. Anyway, I like that instrumental music. The Miller's Son is a great song for a character that's just kind of a maid, a slutty maid. Sorry, a sex-positive maid for the whole show up to that point. And then she does this big, long, three-part soliloquy after having sex in the grass with the butler, Frid, with uh, some really exciting, interesting wordplay. It's a wink and a wiggle and a giggle in the grass, and I'll trip the light go a pinch in the little, 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 it's a very short road from the pinch and the punch to the paunch and the pouch and the pension. Come on, man. That's great. That's up there with uh, 
if a person's personality is personable, it's harder than a matador coercionable. These are the uh, Sondheim highlights. I really like Now, Later, and Soon, those three songs at the very beginning, despite the creepiness of what they're singing about. I found an interesting Sondheim regrets that part in Now where he talks about all the books. And because uh, he was showing off again, there goes Sondheim showing off. And it's the, it's the difference between funny and clever, he says. When he's talking about what books he should read his wife to get her in the mood for sex. Where he's, uh, <clears throat> in view of her penchant for something romantic, to sod a suit, trenchant, and dick and suit, frantic, and stand all would ruin the plan of attack as there isn't much blue in the red and the black. Demopassant? Oh, boy, am I an idiot. Demopassant's candor would cause her dismay. The Brontes are grander, but not very gay. Her taste is much blander, I'm sorry to say, but is Hans Christian Anderson ever risque? Which eliminates A. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, uh, word pyrotechnics, but it doesn't get a laugh from the audience. If anybody in the audience laughed at that, they're probably nerds from Yale, which is what Sondheim is. If only Sondheim could have gone to Yale forever and performed for Yale nerds. Just kidding. The song Later is so amazing. I think to play Henrik, there's a lot of demands. And I've seen this show on stage a lot, usually in small 99-seat situations. I think probably that because, okay, so so Henrik plays the cello. Let's, let's, let's talk about what those demands are first. A, Henrik plays the cello. And he hits a very high note. <laughs> what note is that? I got to check. When he goes, for God's sake. Give me a sec. Okay, that's a B. That's going to be a B. A B2 over the G. A high note for a gentleman. For God's sake. <laughs> Later, Henrik. You gotta sustain that note for a long time, and not with falsetto like I did, with my cop-out falsetto. So, they don't normally cast an accomplished cello player, because the cello playing is, sounds pretty complicated and, dy and dynamic. I think the best way to go is if you have somebody pretending to play the cello while an accomplished cello plays from the pit. When I saw this show done, I want to say at the Pacific Palisades Playhouse, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the kid, the guy playing Henrik had a cello with all kinds of like little colored stickers on the frets. So you knew like, oh shit, he's going to play that thing. <laughs> he's got all those stickers on there because he just learned how to do it. And, you know, it sounded uh, not very good. So uh, that's not advisable because it's hard cello playing. It's not just the du, 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 du. you got to whatever. So anyway, to play Henrik really well, you got to be a legit tenor, and you got to be able to play the cello, and you got to be a decent actor, and you have to look convincingly young. The only harder to cast character in a Sondheim show outside of Henrik, I would argue, maybe, is uh, Giuseppe Zangara in Assassins. Holy shit. Giuseppe Zangara, you gotta be four feet tall 
and you got to have those fucking notes, really high notes, and um, look like you might be Italian, convincingly Italian. The song You Must Meet My Wife was funny. It's not haha funny. It's pleasantly uh, clever and droll. <laughs> you Must Meet My Wife was in Side by Side by Sondheim, and it was in our version of it until the director cut it along with uh, <laughs> a couple other songs. The show was running long, and I don't think I was doing a very good job on You Must Meet My Wife. Being a turn-of-the-century high-class man, I think that uh, I was a little too... Uh, long-haired and bad-postured to pull that off. You know, it's a beautiful song, Every Day a Little Death. Didn't really appreciate it until I grew up a bit and I heard it the melody-wise and sentiment-wise. Uh, it's beautiful. I don't understand why they're using Little Death, which, as we all know, you know, petite mort means sex in French. So I don't understand the connection there. I think maybe it's just sort of an ancillary connection. God, I don't even know what that means, what I just said. There's a song called It Would Have Been Wonderful in the second act. It's kind of a filler. It's an okay song. It's between Count Carl Magnus Malcolm and Frederick Eggerman. When I was in opera class in uh, high school, my senior year, which I mentioned before, I sang this song in class with my friend... <laughs> Uh, my dear friend, which, uh, you know, prayers up for he's still alive, but uh, he has lost his mind, unfortunately. We sang this song together, and um, I, I was not doing well in opera class because I did not care for opera, and I did not have an operatic voice. I had sort of a loud pop musical theater voice. But whenever I would make fun of my <laughs> opera friends, I would do this fake opera voice, which was like, ah! And so I was singing It Would Have Been Wonderful normally, you know, the song It Would Have Been Wonderful. I was singing the duet in class, and it got to the very end where there's a harmony, and I had the high harmony. And I was just like, it was a split-second decision, just a spur-of-the-moment decision. I was like, I'm going to break into my fake opera voice real quick and see what happens. And I went, uh, it would have been wonderful. And the teacher said, nice, Chris. I was like, that's all it takes to sing opera is to do a pretend Kermit the Frog opera voice. I know that's not all it takes. I have nothing but respect for the opera singers of the world. It's just that I don't like you personally. I don't like your personalities. The only song that the quintet sings, and it's actually just the women, so it's a trio, uh, that's any good is Perpetual Anticipation. It's just a pretty song. It doesn't even seem like it belongs in a musical. It's just a nice three-part counterpoint song. Perpetual anticipation is bad for the heart. You know what song is a snooze? Liaisons. <laughs> Sorry. That's the song that the old woman sings in her wheelchair that goes on for what feels like four hours. At the... Baron of the... What is it? What are the words? At the villa of the Baron de Suniac. The palace of the Duke of Ferrara. That's just this old woman talking about all the times that she fucked and about how people nowadays don't... Like, she doesn't... It doesn't bother her that they fuck, but it bothers her that they don't fuck with 
style and grace. I don't know. It's a really long, boring song. There's a lot of songs that were cut from this that are good. A song called Bang! Exclamation point. Which was supposed to be Count Carl Magnus Malcolm and Desiree. And it's their internal thoughts while they're getting ready to have sex. They replaced it with a song called In Praise of Women, which is good. It's a weird title. But Bang! is a better song. And you know why they took it out? They, they, they changed it because they needed to be able to change the fucking set. It's not a good enough reason, is it? They needed to uh, they needed to get Desiree out of there. They needed to change it to the Carl Magnus's house. Whatever, man. The song "Bang" isn't putting it together, which I I danced to it, but I didn't sing it. It was very strange. I did like a sexual uh, uh, <laughs> seduction dance with the. I was man two. I did a uh, dance with woman two while man three sang that song. Putting it together blows. There's a song called Little... Sorry. There's a song called Silly People. There's a song called Silly People that is sung by the butler, Frid, that got cut. And that sucks for that actor. My God. Because Frid has two goddamn lines. Which I think is why they cut the song. Like, why are we giving Frid a song? But it was a song saying, hey, we're the service people and we just had sex here in the grass and... Look at these silly people in the house acting all polite when we're just, we're, we're poor and we're cool over here in the grass having our sex. So um, they cut that song. The original actor that played Frid, his name was George Lee Andrews. And I have to assume that was a bad day for him when they cut his one song and it turned out he just had two spoken lines. But... He did end up playing Frederick in the New York City Opera version that I talked about. And I assumed that he was a Swede, or at least from some part of Northern Europe, based on the way that he talked. He had like a bit of an accent, and he had blonde hair, and he looked like um, a squarehead. Are, are we allowed to say that? That's, I don't know. They say that in Deadwood about Swedish people. <laughs> but he's from Milwaukee, according to the old Wikipedia. Now... All the George Lee Andrew heads out there, you know what I'm about to say about him. The, the, what's the interesting thing about George Lee Andrews? Well, I'll tell you. George Lee Andrews holds the Guinness World Record for most Broadway performances. He was in the musical Phantom of the Opera for 23 years, playing the role of Fermin. Is that how you say that? Fermin? 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 Monsieur Fermin. He was in that fucking thing from 1988 to 2011. How did he not blow his brains out? I can't imagine how he wouldn't blow his brains out. Hearing those songs uh, every night for 23 years. There's a song called Two Fairy Tales, which was cut, which is a nice little song. My Husband the Pig, that's another nice one. And um, some of these show up in another Sondheim anthology show I haven't talked about called Marry Me a Little, which was a little, very small scale one just done with one man and one woman in the early 80s. And it was all, actually, it was, it was all of the songs cut from Sondheim shows. And they did a version in the 90s here in LA where it was uh, two men. They did like a gay version of it. I didn't see any, I've never seen any iteration of this, of Marry Me a Little. 
And it goes against my uh, my principles of uh, I don't think that you should remove the context from the Sondheim shows uh, and you should just let the whatever. I haven't seen it. Don't care to see it. Curious to see it. The sound, the soundtrack's all right. Because you hear a lot of those songs you hear for the first time. Happily Ever After, by the way. That's the, how I first heard that song from Company, cut from Company, the one that I like, that I talked about last episode. So... Um, we're coming towards the end here. Here's just a few side notes. Now, if you read the script of A Little Night Music, the summer night is going to smile three times, folks. They say that at the very beginning. The summer night smiles three times. The first time for the young who know nothing. And then the second time for the fools who know too little. And the third time for the old who know too much. So, it smiles for the young. Anne and Henrik end up together, I guess. That's the summer night smiling for the young. It smiles for the fools. Desiree and Frederick. They're clowns. Send them in. <laughs> they're the fools. And then Frederica says, oh, but Grandma, it hasn't smiled a third time. Or it only has to smile one more time. Yes. It's a Madame Armfelt, the old lady in the wheelchair, says yes. Yes, one more time. And then it says in the stage direction, she dies. Now, I read the script before I ever saw it on stage, but I feel like that doesn't come across when you see it. I think it looks like she's falling asleep. Do you agree? If so, give us a call at Sondheim on Adderall. Because... Yeah, I think it just looks like, oh, it's oh, it's an open-ended, unsatisfying ending. It doesn't look like she died, because the, the granddaughter doesn't look like she gives a shit that her grandma just died in her wheelchair. And she kind of just sort of slumps down, and she's old, you know, and it's nighttime. I feel like I would have assumed she just went to sleep. I want to talk about one more thing. So Sondheim, uh, in, as, it, this is as a uh, footnote in finishing the hat when he's talking about this show he has a very spicy grumpy thing to say about critics <laughs> and i'm going to quote it in its entirety because it's interesting so he says the sad truth is that musicals are the only public art form reviewed mostly by ignoramuses books are reviewed by writers the visual arts by disappointed if knowledgeable painters and art students Concert music by composers and would-be composers. Plays, at least in this country, are viewed by people who don't know De Monterland from De Gilderode and couldn't care less, whose knowledge is comprised of what they read in variety in gossip columns, who know nothing, of course, about music, nor do they think it necessary. Otis Guernsey Jr., who used to review for the New York Times and was the selector of best plays and musicals for the yearly Burns Mental series of best plays, once said to me that music was the one field where a reviewer needed no knowledge. Music, he claimed, was everybody's province, and musical knowledge was unnecessary for a critic. His attitude prevails. Musicals continue to be the only art form, popular or otherwise, that is publicly criticized by illiterates. So set aside the fact that that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very um, cantankerous thing to say. But um, it got me thinking. So I, I, I think that I 
I agree on some level, and I disagree on others. Like, I... I so Guernsey, Otis Guernsey Jr., this thing that he says that it's the one... People that review music don't need knowledge of it because it's everybody's. I agree with that halfway. I think that music is everybody's, but I go the Susan Sontag route on that. I don't think that anybody should review or interpret music. I think that everybody should shut the fuck up about music and that there should be no such thing as Pitchfork <laughs> and things of this nature, or iTunes reviews, or, dare I say, podcasts like this one. Because... I don't know, maybe if you're the sort of person... I mean, I, I and when I say Sontag, I mean like against interpret it to Sontag to Sondheim to anything taboo they're right together uh Sontag and Sondheim in one people am there uh couldn't uh let that go by without referencing it but she was Susan Sontag uh, against interpretation it's very satisfying to read and I'm probably butchering it or misunderstanding it or oversimplifying it but I tend to agree that people shouldn't interpret anything and music is the one that really feels that way to me because I have had, I have had many a song ruined for me by visiting songmeanings.net. And I don't mean like a musical theater-like song where the whole point is that you're supposed to know what it means because it services a story. I mean like a, a folk song or a pop song or a rock song. There was the song Millennium for All by John K. Sampson the his uh, solo project uh, the guy from the weaker thans and that song meant so much to me because it just uh, it, i knew what it meant to me and then i made the mistake of looking it up and it was written as a uh, it, it was to save a library from having metal detectors or something in winnipeg canada he wrote this and then when you listen to the lyrics like oh yeah of course that's what he means fuck and now that song uh, is practically uh, meaningless to me because I don't, I've never been anywhere near Winnipeg. And uh, you get what I'm saying? So, yeah, there shouldn't be music critics. So I'll go, I guess I go even further than Sondheim. And uh, I'm in the middle place between him and this gentleman, Otis Guernsey Jr. Nobody should review music. And really, no one should review anything. Or maybe they should. I don't know. Pauline Kale was fine. So this concludes our episode on A Little Night Music. I hope you enjoyed it more than I enjoyed talking with a really sore throat this whole time. Next episode, we're doing another skip, skip, skip a -roo. We're not going to talk about Pacific Overtures just yet. Maybe later, folks. On the second run, we're going to go over some of these other ones. But we're going to go straight to Sweeney Todd. Big one. Landmark. Many people's favorite. For good reason. Real excited to talk about it. Sweeney Todd. Very important musical to me growing up. Do I have anything else to tell you? I guess not. So until next time, I'm going to look up a quote here in real time. Like I promised you I always would. Sondheim quote that says goodbye okay here it is leave you leave you how could I leave you what would I do not recording 
could I clean my fucking room with all the Kleenex and cough drop wrappers? Should I finally do some laundry or maybe some homework? This is not your business. This is just the things that I have to do for the rest of my day. Thank you so much for listening. I hope the summer night smiles on you as it has smiled upon me. The fool. Good evening. <laughs>